Father, what an incredible privilege that we get to call you Father. That we should be called children of God. What amazing love this is. Lord, we pray that you'd help us to see you a little bit more clearly today. That maybe any misconceptions we have about you, that, that some of those could be dispelled and we'd, we'd have the veil removed a little bit more to, to see your glory a little bit more clearly. To fall more deeply in love with you. Thank you, Father, for speaking to us through your word, through the power of your Holy Spirit. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. She was a nurse. She was working in the psychiatric ward. This was back in the 1970s when patients may have gotten treated a little bit differently. And as she was helping one particular patient, she said he had a cart full of papers that described the the various medical things that had happened in his life. And she said that this man was a walking vegetable. He didn't talk. He'd been so depressed that maybe he'd had some shock treatments or something else, but he was incapable of speaking, of communicating. His life seemed kind of meaningless. But one day something happened. Ed, the nursing assistant, came racing to Janet, who happens to be my mom, and said, He's fallen. He's not breathing. You see, this man had been eating pudding, chocolate pudding. Not sure if that's what he choked on, but as he was eating the chocolate pudding, uh, he was no longer breathing and he's laying there on the floor and she rushes in. What do you do in that moment? Before the days where you had all the convenient equipment to do CPR really easily in the room. And she has a choice right then. She begins to scrape the chocolate pudding out of his mouth. And, of course, the nursing assistant runs to call for help. And so she is then has to go down and begin to do CPR. Now, I need to tell you something else about this patient that my mom remembers. She remembers that he had very bad oral hygiene. He didn't brush his teeth. He had, to be, uh, he had food caked on his teeth. And he'd been eating chocolate pudding. Just keep that all in mind as uh, she's doing CPR. And thankfully, it wasn't too long before the cardiac team arrived. Now, don't worry. I got my mom's permission to share this with you. I'm not sure why she said it was okay, but she did. So the CPR team, the cardiac team arrives. And as the cardiac team arrives, she is able to reprieve herself from doing CPR And she talks to the charge nurse. She's talking to other people about what had happened. And then she has to go back about her business and delivering medications and taking around the medications to patients, serving the patients. And then after a good long while has gone by, she's seen plenty of people talk to different nurses, talking to other staff. She's finally told by the charge nurse, okay, now you can go on lunch. Oh, good. So she goes to the bathroom to wash her hands and she looks into the mirror And she sees that all around her mouth is a ring of chocolate pudding. (laughs) Guess what they were serving for lunch in the cafeteria? Guess what my mom didn't touch for lunch, nor for a long time after that? Have you ever looked in the mirror and been shocked by what you've seen? Have have you ever glanced into the mirror and and recognized that, that you didn't know that that was what you were looking like in that moment. Maybe it wasn't chocolate pudding for you. Maybe it was something else as you looked into the mirror. 
We're going to continue diving into the third angel's message. Uh, it's so, so fascinating to me that I just want to keep spending some more time on it here, and I'm praying that God continues to move our hearts closer to Jesus in this message that is really righteousness by faith. It is the gospel in verity. Revelation chapter 14 and verse 9 says this, The third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and his image and receives his mark on his forehead or on his hand, he himself will also drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out full strength into the cup of his indignation. He will be tormented with fire and brimstone. And and last week we looked at this, this concept of torment. And we found out something, that if you have no fear, you have no torment. That fear involves torment, but perfect love casts out all fear. There's good news here, and this is warning us that to turn away from the love of Jesus is pure torment in our lives. He shall be tormented, not just, he shall be tormented with what though? Tormented with fire and brimstone, In the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb, and the smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever. Yeah, have mercy. That's what we need. Clearly, this is here for an urgent purpose. It's here to warn us about something crucial. It's it's essential that we grasp what's talked about here, even though we often want to skip over this and say, let's not really talk about that. Well, What exactly is this talking about that we should be tormented with fire and brimstone? So let's go back to Daniel chapter 7 where we find this picture of a throne room scene that I believe is instructive. Daniel chapter 7 and verse 9 says this, I watched till thrones were put in place and the ancient of days was seated. Now, Now this gives us a picture of a judgment that takes place in the heavenly councils before Jesus comes back that enables him to bring his reward with him, that enables him to come back having already gotten the angels on board with the decisions that are being made. I watched till throne was set up. Now notice how it's described in verse 10. Continuing in verse 9, it says, His garment was white as snow, and the hair of his head was pure like wool. His throne was what? A fiery flame. Its wheels a burning fire. So, so this is describing what? The throne of God. And how, what, what language does it use in the book of Daniel to describe his throne? It's fiery. Its wheels are fiery. But it gets even more intense than that. Look at verse 10. A fiery stream issued and came forth from before him. Now, as you look at this, you're thinking, wow, this is an intense inferno right there in the throne room of God. But all of a sudden, it tells us something. Look at what it says. A thousand thousands ministered to him. Ten thousands times ten thousand. There's, there's hundreds of millions of creatures there. And where are they standing? They stood before him. Now, keep in mind, the the throne is fiery. There's a fiery stream issuing out of the throne. And right there, standing in front of the throne, are hundreds of thousands of angels right there in his fiery presence. You know, in the Bible, you get this picture that there are people who actually dwell in the fire. There are creatures who dwell in the fire. In fact, in Isaiah chapter 6, if you remember that vision where Isaiah sees the Lord seated on, seated on his throne, do you remember what the name of the creatures are that are surrounding him at that point? They have six wings. They're called the seraphim. 
And seraphim comes from the Hebrew seraph to, to burn. They're the fiery ones. And they're the ones that are closest to God himself. This picture of people that actually dwell in God's presence who are in the midst of fire. But notice that there's another picture of people in this same scene. The fire is issuing out of the throne. There's people that are right there as a part of it. But we'll keep going. I watched then because of the sound of the pompous words which the horn was speaking. I watched till the beast was slain and its body destroyed and given to the what? The burning flame, the same flame that has hundreds of millions of angels there in the presence of God who we're told they're singing holy, 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 who are worshiping him. They're there in the very presence of God. That same exact fire does what to the beast? It destroys him. It's, he's given to that same burning, burning flame and he's destroyed by it. You know, in the Bible, there's this picture that, that there is fire that is both life to the righteous, and destruction to the wicked. Let's unpack this a little bit. We're going to look at fire in the Bible, and we're going to look at a few different descriptions of fire in the Bible. Let's go to Deuteronomy chapter 33, verses 2 and 3. The Lord came, this is Moses talking, from Sinai. He's reminding them about that moment when, when God showed up to give the Ten Commandments. He said, he came from Sinai. He shone forth from Mount Paran. And then it goes on to say this. From his right hand came a fiery law for them. It says the law that he gave to them, that law was a, what type of law? Let's, let's make sure everybody's with us. What type of law was given from his right hand? A fiery law was given from his right hand for them. Why? Yes, he loves his people. Because he loved them, he gave them a fiery law. So this is the first picture uh, I want you to grasp today of fire. Uh, the law is described as a fiery law. Now let's look at the second one. Exodus chapter 24 and verse 17. It says, The sight of the glory of the Lord was like a consuming what? Fire on the top of the mountain in the eyes of the children of Israel. What was like a consuming fire to them? The glory of the Lord, as they looked in their eyes, the way that they perceived God's presence, his glory on that mountain, it was like a consuming fire. So we see, one, his law is like a fiery law. Two, his glory is like a consuming fire. Let's keep looking. Song of Solomon, chapter 8, verses 6 and 7 says, Put me like a seal over your heart, like a seal on your arm. For love is as strong as death. Jealousy is as severe as Sheol. Its flashes are flashes of fire, the very flame of the Lord. The word there is for the personal name for God, Yahweh. The, the, the very flame of love is the very flame of Yahweh. Love is a burning fire, according to Song of Solomon, chapter 8. It goes on to describe it further. It says, Many waters cannot quench love, nor will rivers overflow it. That's good news for those of you who are, who are married and those of you who are about to get married. Many waters cannot quench love that comes from the divine source, that comes from the heart of Jesus. It is a, a burning fire that nothing can put out. So we see here we have, what was the first thing? Okay, I'm going to need some communication now, right? Most of you aren't wearing masks, so you can't fool me anymore, right? A fiery 
law. Okay, so number one, fire is compared to the law. Okay, number two, what was it compared to? The glory of God. And what was the third thing we saw there? Love. Love is like the very flame of Yahweh. But that's not all. Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 29 says, For our God is a consuming fire. It says God himself is a consuming fire. It was just trying to describe exactly that that God actually has tongues of fire, that he's actually uh, flames, that that is who he is. Or is this giving us the best picture that we can come to grasp his character by? That this helps us to understand what he's like in nature. He is a consuming fire. So when it says that those who worship the beast, they're going to be tormented with fire and brimstone. While it says that others will be there in the presence of his glory, it may be that we're witnessing the same exact event. That we are witnessing that all of us, all of humanity, all of creation is destined for the unveiled presence of the almighty God of the universe. And he is a consuming fire. And our experience in that moment is dependent on the choices that we make from day to day now. So one, we see that the law is a fiery law. Two, the glory is like a consuming fire. Three, the love is like a very flame of Yahweh. And then we see that God himself is a consuming fire. Now, James chapter 1 says something fascinating. What we're going to do now is to look at, well, in, in what way could you say that the law is a fiery law? Well, why does it say that? What exactly does that mean? A fiery law. How do we unpack that? Well, James chapter 1, verses 23 to 25 says, For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer. Okay, this is, this is one that us preachers like to talk about a lot, right? So if you come to church and you hear the word, if you listen to this, but you don't go out and actually do it, It goes on to say, he is like a man observing his natural face in a mirror. For he observes himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of man he was. So if if you read this book, it's like you're, you're looking in a mirror. And as you look in that mirror, you say, whoa, hang on. I missed, oh, look at that. Okay, I have a little bit of a unibrow. I have some, some stuff over here that I should have washed off my face. Maybe I should, I should have brushed my teeth a little better. Okay, let's see. Nah, just get rid of the mirror. Go on about my day. Who, who really cares about mirrors anyway? I'm just going to go on about my life. Immediately forgets what kind of man he is. Notice how it goes on to say, but he who looks into the perfect law of liberty... When I'm looking at the law, it's, it's, it's freeing, it's liberty. It, it tells me the path of healing. It tells me the path of life. It tells me what life is designed to look like, the only way that I can experience life. He who looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues in it and is not a forgetful hearer but a doer of the work, this one will be blessed in what he does. So we see that, that the law, it's, it's fiery because it reveals. And this makes sense. When you think about fire, you light a torch in a forest. That fire illuminates so that you can see where, what's going on. You light a lamp. It used to be lit by fire, right? And, and you'd be able to see what's in a room. Light is poured out through fire and it illuminates. It gives us understanding. And the law of God shows me what I'm like. And this can be a really helpful thing. Um, 
Romans chapter 3, verse 20 says it this way. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. Says, if I didn't have the law, I wouldn't come to know what's wrong. I would, I would just keep going about my business thinking, well, that's not really that bad. And people shouldn't have a problem with me treating them that way. And I'm just going to go on doing it the way I want. My parents are wrong that that's harmful for me. But the law, it gives us a knowledge of sin. As we look at it, we see what our face really looks like. And we realize, I need to get cleaned up a little bit. Romans chapter 4. Sorry. <laughs> Romans chapter 4, verse 15, says something else fascinating. Because the law brings about wrath. Now let that sink in for a second. As we're reading about this cup of wrath that is poured out full strength into the, his indignation is, is poured out on people. Now, if that's talking about God in anger coming to people and, and providing a physical torment to them, what is this talking about with wrath? How, how does the law accomplish that in a human being? Is God really worried about creating a physical torture for somebody? When we've seen in Jesus on the cross that the greatest possible agony that can be experienced is when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane saying, my soul is sorrowful unto the point of death. You see, the law reveals the shame and guilt that's inside of me that I've been hiding from. There's different ways we've talked about that you can hide from that shame and guilt. You can deny it. You can say, no, I don't think that's, that's a big deal. You can, you can choose to, to run to your addictions. This morning somebody said in first service, well, you can go to sugar. You can just go eat and forget about the, the things that, that have created that shame and that guilt inside of you, that self-loathing. You can turn to the bottle. You can turn to a myriad of things. Or you can criticize the people around you. You know, I'm not that bad. Look at her and look at what she's doing. You feel real good because you're pulling somebody else down. In the process, you're feeling better about yourself. But all of this is stripped away when we come in contact with the perfect law of liberty, which reveals that we've been storing up wrath inside of us like we talked about last week. If you you missed last week, you can catch it on our YouTube channel. But it talks about how this wrath is stored up inside of us and it will be poured out on every soul who doesn't choose to turn at the goodness of God and to repent. And there'll be indignation and torment on the soul. Soul being the word psyche. It'll be a psychological, emotional pain that is beyond comprehension and that I don't want to go through and I don't want any other human being to go through it. And that Jesus doesn't want anybody to go through either. That's why he went to the cross so that he could show you what this is like so that he could take your sin upon himself so that you could choose the path of life. For yourself. Now, Paul gives us this, this illustration. He says, you know, I was alive before the law came. But then he says this in Romans chapter 7, verse 10. He said, in the commandment which was to bring life, I found to bring death. You know, sometimes what we think is, the problem is with the mirror. This is the problem. This mirror has smudges on it. And so the reason that I am seeing bad things on my face is simply the mirror. And so thankfully, Jesus came and he died on the cross to do away with the mirror, right? So that I don't have to have the mirror anywhere, anymore. But the problem is that we see that the law of God is the transcript of God's character, that God is love, and to love God with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our strength, to love other people, that this is the essence of who God is. And that can't be thrown away. So the problem is not with the law. Notice what it goes on to say. The commandment which was to bring life, I found to bring death. For what? 
Okay, we lost track here. For, let's try one more time. For sin, taking occasion by the commandment, deceived me, and by it killed me. You see, sin is what is doing the destructive work inside of us. As we come in contact with the law, it condemns us. It, it, we suddenly see that, that we have all of this shame, all of this guilt. It's not the law that's the problem. It's the sin inside of us. And Jesus is inviting us to turn, to have life in him. You know, my girls are learning to eat on their own, and it's a beautiful thing t- to see, and it's great because we don't have to sit there spoon-feeding them. Not that I minded, really minded that, but sometimes they're eating something that's a little bit messy. And here you can see they're eating some pasta, and they just love pasta. And sometimes that pasta gets all over their face, and they'll have pasta sauce all over. Sometimes we'll even take their shirt off because we just know they're going to be serious about eating. But I'll tell you something. For a long time, I would, my, my job was to, after they're done eating, to take them and wash them up. And I would take them to the kitchen sink. And I'd wash their hands there in the kitchen sink. And then I'd say, okay, now I need to wash your face. And so I'd begin to wash their face. And they would start crying and saying, no, why are you doing that? Stop, leave me alone. I didn't like that. So I figured something out. If I take them and we go to the bathroom, turn the light on, and there they see in the mirror what their face looks like. They say, Daddy, what's that on my face? <laughs> and then they're a little bit more willing to have me wash their face. A little bit happier about the process because there their smile is coming out from behind the pasta sauce. And when I come in contact with the law and I look at it as the agent that is to reveal sin in me so that Jesus can heal me, And suddenly, I'm excited about the process, and I'm opening my heart up to Jesus, and I'm allowing him into every nook and cranny of my heart. So we see that the law is a mirror that reveals sin. By the law is the knowledge of sin. So what about this whole idea of glory? How does that that help us to understand? How do we grasp that the glory of God is a fire? 2 Corinthians 3, verse 18 says, But we all, with unveiled face... Now, this is, this is tying into the story of Moses, that when he came down the mountain, they said, put a veil over your face, because they couldn't stand seeing the glory. They'd already said, we don't like seeing that fire on the mountain. We don't want for God to talk to us anymore. We want for you to go up there and talk to him. We don't want to do that ourselves. So Moses goes up there, he comes back down, and he starts to talk to them. They're like, hang on, can you put a veil over your face too? Because we can't even handle talking with you unless you have a veil over your face. But it says, but we all with unveiled face, finally, finally willing to look and look and look at this God of infinite power and love, beholding as in a what? A mirror, the glory of the Lord. It, it compares the glory of the Lord to be like a mirror. When I see how incredibly awesome God is, when I see his self-sacrificing love, which is revealed preeminently on the cross of Jesus Christ, when I see that my God laid down his life, that he'd rather that you exist than that he existed, when I see that kind of love, suddenly I realize, man, I'm selfish. I'm living life for myself. I'm worried about my money and my car and my house, and I'm not worried about my neighbors. I'm not worried about helping my community. What's going on in my heart when I see his glory is like a mirror that says, there's something wrong with your face, Zach. There's something going on there. But it's good news because it continues on. It says, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. 
says, as I look and look and look and allow the Spirit to come in, He begins to work that transformation so that I become more and more and more like the glory of that beautiful, self-sacrificing God that I'm looking at. So we have the law being a mirror that reveals sin. We have the glory being a mirror that transforms us from the inside out. But how about love? Is love like a mirror? The, the, what chapter in the Bible is known as the love chapter? 1 Corinthians chapter 13. This beautiful chapter that is transformative. If you don't, haven't spent a lot of time there, I encourage you. Read it again and again and again. But as you read it, it's challenging because it says love is patient, love is kind, and is not jealous. Love does not boast and is not arrogant. It does not take into account a wrong suffered. It does not rejoice with unrighteousness. And as you see that it bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, as you see this type of love, at least as I do, I realize that's really different from who I am in here. That's not who I am. So it can be discouraging to look at this love that is so infinite and so beautiful. But notice what 1 Corinthians chapter 13 goes on to say this. For we now see in a mirror dimly. Our, our mirrors are dim. They're, they're fogged up. They've got some dust on them. I, I can't really see clearly in this mirror yet. But then, face to face. There's coming a day where all of humanity will see God face to face. And it's starting now that I need to drink in of the love of God, that I need to, to begin to behold as much as I can in order to be ready for that moment. Now I know in part, but then I shall know just as I am also known. I only know a little fraction of what God's like, of what his love is like. It's an infinite, uh, beautiful thing that I'm going to go throughout eternity learning about. But when I learn about it, when I'm there face to face with God, I'm going to discover something. I will know just as what? Just as I also am known. I'm going to recognize something about God that, that he's known the details all of my life. He's known the dark nooks and crannies and he's been pursuing me in love anyway. And he's been pursuing you in love. And if you're sitting here this morning thinking, well, when I look at the law, I just feel all of this condemnation. I'm here to tell you this morning that Jesus died for you. That he loves you. That he wants to heal your heart. That he wants you to open up wide and allow his forgiving love to transform you from the inside out. You are fully known and you're also fully loved. And that is the path of your healing. So we see that the law is like a mirror that reveals sin. The glory is like a mirror that transforms. And love is a mirror that lets me know that I'm fully known and I'm also fully loved. And what about God? Malachi chapter 3 verse 2. We looked at Malachi chapter 4 last week about how the sun of righteousness is to rise and how there's a cleansing power in light and how God wants to cleanse our hearts and to rise more and more in our, uh, be exalted in our estimation. Malachi 3 verse 2 says, But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire or a launderer's soap. Now there's good news. This is actually talking about when he comes to us through the power of the Spirit before that final appearing of God in the clouds. Verse 3, he will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver. He will purify the sun's of Levi. He's a refiner's fire for you. 
There's sin in my life. There's sin in your life. There's, there's habits that we want to get rid of. There's things that I recognize hurt people around me, and I don't want it to be a part of my life anymore. And he says, I'm a refiner's fire. I'll take care of that. There's, there's impurity in you. And he says, if you'll come, if you'll let me, if you'll open up your heart to me, and you'll stop hiding, you'll come out in the open, you'll say, okay, God, here I am. Would you please take care of this for me? Confess your sin and repent of it. The goodness of God that leads us to repentance, his goodness will also cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Malachi chapter 3 verse 2 goes on, but who can endure the day of his coming? Who could stand when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire or a launderer's soap. So we see here that the law is like a mirror that reveals sin. The glory is like a mirror. The love is like a mirror. And God himself is that refining fire that transforms our hearts. It works that transformation in us. Isaiah chapter 4 encourages us with what God wants to do through the power of his spirit. When the Lord has washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion, verse 4 says, by the spirit of judgment and by the spirit of what? burning. There's a concept of fire in the Bible that is a moral fire that has to do with our, our, psyche, our psyche, our soul. It has to do with what's going on inside of here. And that picture in Daniel chapter 7 is a picture of this judgment that is taking place that, that God is going amongst his people and he is seeking to purify a people to stand in his presence. It's good news. It's good news about a God who's passionate about you, who says, I don't want for them to have any more of that sin inside of them. I want to set them free. And we have the choice to yield that to him day in, day out. I think the key point for us to understand today is that before there's any physical fire that comes in the end, there is a moral cleansing fire. And all of us are destined for the same place. The righteous and the wicked are destined for the unveiled presence of God himself in all of his beauty and all of his splendor. And for one group, like we learned last week, they're going to be saying, behold, this is our God. We have waited for him and they'll be filled with joy. The other group will be running and asking for the rocks and the caves and the mountains to fall on them because they haven't dealt with that shame, that guilt. They've been hiding. It's time for us to come out of hiding. It's time for us to open up our hearts and say, Jesus, this is who I am. I need you. I need that spirit to transform my heart. Thoughts from the Mount of Blessings, page 62 says this. If you cling to self, refusing to yield your will to God, you're choosing death. It's our choice God is not going to condemn any person. He's not the one who's going to choose for you. You get to choose. If you cling to self, you're choosing death. To sin, wherever found, God is a consuming fire. Now, if you look at me, can you see my sin? Is there anything physical that you can point out and say, there's his sin? Well, I'm here to tell you that I'm a sinner. There's something inside of me that has to do with sin. You see, the fire has to do more than a physical cleansing of sin. This is talking about a moral refinement that has to take place. And if we're willing, before he comes back, he wants to cleanse our hearts by the power of his spirit, with that spirit of burning. If you choose sin, however, and refuse to separate from it, the presence of God which consumes sin must consume you. At the end, there's going to be people that aren't able to love. They've lost that capacity to love. 
And, and to, to be in God's presence, we'll learn this on a future week, to be in God's presence would be to them a greater torture than ceasing to exist. And so they are incapable of living in a universe where love is the guiding principle of all of creation. And so in the end, the consuming fire will have to consume them. So James chapter 2 gives us this, this injunction. It says, so speak and so do as those who will be judged by the law of liberty. There's coming a day when we're going to face that law and we may as well start now. We may as well pick up our Bible day in and day out now and say, God, would you search my heart? Would you reveal what's going on in here? Would you reveal how you can enhance my relationships with the people around me and with you by getting rid of the sin in my life? Sin only hurts us. There's nothing good about it. But his love, it's everything. And it makes every relationship better. It enhances every part of our lives. So speak and so do as those who will be judged by the law of liberty, the law that sets us free. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Friends, I think that there's a clear statement here. That in the end, the crucial thing is, have I been loving to the people around me? Have I showed mercy to the people around me? Because if I haven't shown mercy to others, then I won't be able to expect mercy in the end. But the good news is that mercy triumphs over judgment. It's mercy that triumphs over judgment. And as I live mercifully towards those who don't deserve the mercy in my life, I'm participating in the character of a God who treats me that way. I recently read that if if Jesus treated you and me the way that we treat each other, nobody would be saved. Thankfully, he doesn't. And he's calling for us, too, to have that same mercy inside of us. He's calling for us to love our enemies, like Romans 12 says, and in so doing, as we give them a a cup of water, as we bless those who curse us, as we pray for those who spitefully use us, we're actually heaping coals of fire upon their heads. C.S. Lewis, in Mere Christianity, says this, that I, help, I think helps us to grasp that, that heaven and hell is, is not just some arbitrary thing. It's not just something off in the future, but it's a reality that we need to begin to experience now. Not the hell part, but the heaven part. Right before this, he's describing how we need to stop thinking of God's rules, God's laws, as something that if we disobey them, we're going to be punished by them. But instead, recognize something at a deeper level that's happening to us through the choices that we're making, depending upon the law of God. It says this, every time you make a choice, you are turning the central part of you the part of you that chooses into something a little different from what it was before. We've talked about the neuroplasticity of the brain. Every choice you make makes new pathways. It changes who you are. You're a different person this week than when I saw you last week. That's why when you haven't seen somebody for a long time and you try to connect with them, you're like, I don't even know if I know them anymore. You actually have been changed by the choices that you've made. The central part of you, the part of you that chooses, is being changed into something a little different from what it was before. And taking your life as a whole, with all of your innumerable choices, all your life long, you are slowly turning this central thing either into a heavenly creature or into a hellish creature. Every choice that I make, every way that I treat somebody around me, it's either creating heaven or hell on this planet, heaven or hell in my life, and it's forming me into a person who's going to experience either heaven or hell in the presence of God. 
either into a creature that is in harmony with God, with other creatures, the people around me, and with itself, or else into one that is in a state of war and hatred with God and with its fellow creatures and with itself. To be the one kind of creature is heaven. That is, it is joy and peace and knowledge and power. To be the other means madness, horror, idiocy, rage, impotence, and eternal loneliness. Put like that, it seems like an easy choice, doesn't it? I choose Jesus. I choose his law. I choose to look at him. Each of us, at each moment, is progressing to the one state or to the other. You see, probation closes from the inside. It's based upon me and my capacity to love. And when I have lost all capacity to love, probation will close for me. But if I keep opening my heart up, and allowing his spirit in to work that cleansing power in my heart and to open myself up to abound more and more in love. And I can be confident that eternal life is already abiding in me. Heaven is becoming a reality on earth. But one day, one day you and I are destined for a greater reality. This is where Jesus wants you and I to stand one day. Revelation chapter 15 verse 2 says, And I saw something like a sea of glass mingled with what? Mingled with fire before the throne of God. There's a sea of glass and it's mingled with fire. And there it says, And those who have the victory over the beast. Here's the opposite picture. On the one hand, you have those who are worshiping the beast. They're drinking the cup of wrath and they're tormented with fire and indignation in the presence of the Lamb. But then you have another group. They're standing on the sea of glass mingled with fire and they've had victory over the beast. His character has not become a part of them. And they've had victory over his image and over his mark and over the number of his name. And they're standing on the sea of glass having harps of God. That's where I want for you to be. That's where I want to be. Friends, today we need an urgency for intimacy. We need an urgency for coming in contact with this amazing God of love. It was about a year into dating Leah when I realized something, you know, kind of like coming in contact with God and seeing yourself in a way that you recognize there's something missing there. As I dated Leah, it was like looking into a mirror and realizing, you know, she's never had a boyfriend. She's so sweet. She's, she's lived this amazing life. She was like, Her Bible teacher loved her in high school. I mean, it's like the exact opposite of my high school experience. What's going on here? Who is this girl? Then I realized as I got to know her a little bit better, I was interested in spending life with her. I thought this would be an amazing thing. I'd like to live life with this this beautiful, pure girl who never even had a girlfriend. And then, uh, sorry, boyfriend. Uh, She she never had a girlfriend either, I promise. I promise. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate that correction. (laughs) I stand corrected and I'm glad for that. All right. And as I realized there's something different about her, it began to bring up memories from my own past. Experiences that I had had and things that I had done that I was not proud of. Things that I realized would be hurtful to our relationship if she knew about them, I thought. And I thought, I don't know if I can bring these things out. I don't know if I can talk about these things. I think I better just keep these things hidden. But the more I thought about it, 
I can't go on living the rest of my life with the, having these things hidden. I can't go on and just pretend like these things never happen. If I want intimacy, intimacy requires honesty. It requires openness. It requires holding nothing back. So I remember a, about a year into our relationship, we had a conversation. And I began to tell her, about the things that I was really not proud about, about the things that had happened in previous relationships. And as I told her these things, I remember so clearly how she said, well, you're a new creation, right? I said, well, I want to be. She said, well, God forgives you. I forgive you. You're a new creation. You mean you still want to date this, this crazy guy? Yeah. Thankfully, she said yes when I asked her to marry me. I can tell you that when you open yourself up, when you stop hiding, that there's a greater and greater intimacy. And Jesus, he's expressing an urgency for intimacy with you and intimacy with me. And we've got to be honest. We've got to be open. We've got to have all of our cards out on the table and let him in. Because he is the refiner. He is the healer. He's the one who can change us from our selfishness to love again. And the world is desperately in need of us going out and loving it so radically that they recognize the love of Jesus in us. In closing today, I just want to invite you. What I've described here, um, I've learned a lot of these things through reading this powerful essay that I've prayed over again and again. It goes through a whole bunch of Bible texts and other things, and I wanted to offer it to you today. I have a few hard copies, or if you'd like to text message the, our church phone number, just text message FIRE right now. So I'm actually telling you as a pastor, pull out your cell phones if you want it, if you want a digital copy of it, or if you want a physical copy, let me know. But it's something that I encourage you, if you have the opportunity to read and reread through this study that talks about the fire of God and the transformation that God is longing to work in your heart and my heart and what this fire really looks like. Let's pray to close. Father in heaven, thank you. Thank you that it's your love that is a consuming fire, that is unquenchable. God, help us to open our hearts to that love now so that when we come face to face with you, We'll understand who you are and we'll be able to continue to stand in the presence of your glory because we understand your mercy and your grace and your forgiveness. And Father, I don't know where hearts are at this morning, but Lord, if we're hiding anything, would you just encourage us right now to let it go to you, to confess it, to let your forgiveness, your grace, take it. If we're denying some things in our life and saying that's not really a problem, would you convict us in a way that brings healing and that shows us the path of life? And Lord, would you lead us to be people who have mercy triumphing over judgment? That we express mercy with our neighbors, that we express mercy with our spouses, that we express mercy with our children, with our friends and with our enemies, with everybody in our life, that we treat them in the way that you've treated us. Would you please fill us with your Holy Spirit? Would you transform our hearts through the power of your love, I pray. In the name of Jesus, amen.